What do you like more, the country or the Hispanics? He says, the country? I don't know. I, I, I may have to go for the Hispanics, to be honest with you. We got a lot of Hispanics. We love our Hispanics. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI in Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, and KEPW in Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we're on WLRI in Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN in Palinville, New York, WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. In Seattle, Washington, we're on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. Now, the broadcast is usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but today you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com. And if you're wondering why I'm here again, I invite you to visit Bradblog.com and read Brad's short personal note, in which he explains the circumstances behind his and Desi's absence. In short... Brad's otherwise very healthy father suffered what appears to be a major stroke last week. So they're in Arizona dealing with the issues that every adult child encounters at some point. Angie Coiro of In Deep Radio and I will continue to hold down the fort until Brad and Desi can return. And sadly, this is a tough week for the Green News Report to be suspended as the global climate strike kicks off this Friday, September 20th. If you visit globalclimatestrike.net, you'll get all the details on the strike, where to find one near you, or even organize your own. A little later in this hour, I'll speak with Tamara Tolls O'Laughlin. She's 350.org's North America director. And that makes me smile, because I think back a decade when 350.org was just getting started, and there were five people on staff including co-founder Bill McKibben, who I spoke with almost 10 years ago to the day. It was October 23rd, 2009, the day before the first International Day of Climate Action, organized by 350.org, in advance of the UN climate talks in Copenhagen. So to provide a bit of a contrast and see how far we've come in 10 years, we'll get into the Wayback Machine and revisit that 2009 chat with Bill McKibben. But we begin today's show with a look at the latest news. 
Tuesday afternoon was dominated by what was supposed to be the first official hearing falling under the impeachment inquiry heading. The House Judiciary Committee had issued subpoenas to former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, former White House Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff Rick Dearborn, and former White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter. The president reportedly told Porter and Dearborn to ignore the congressional subpoenas because they had executive privilege or absolute immunity. The latter doesn't even exist anywhere in our Constitution. But okay, so Porter and Dearborn just didn't show up. Lewandowski was allegedly instructed by the president to only answer questions that are included in the Mueller report. And he proved himself to be an even bigger jerk than we already knew. We learned that early on when he started playing these games in response to the first questions asked of him by Chairman Jerry Nadler. Mr. Lewandowski, we received a letter from the White House just yesterday that they will not let you answer any questions beyond what you told the special counsel and was publicly released. The White House's instruction to you is based on a bogus claim of executive privilege, even though you did not work a single day for the administration, let alone in the executive branch. My colleagues are going to get into the specific events in detail, but I'm especially troubled by the president's attempt to obstruct Congress's investigation and prevent the American people from learning the truth about what he's done, and I want to ask you questions relevant to that issue. Mr. Lewandowski, is it correct that as reported in the Mueller report on June 19, 2017, you met alone in the Oval Office with the president? I said, is, is, it, is there a book and page number you can reference me to, please? I don't have a copy of the report in front of me. Seriously? Volume 2, page 90. But I, I simply ask you, is it correct that as reported in the Mueller report on June 19th, 2017, you met alone in the Oval Office with the president? Could you read the exact language of the report so I don't have it available to oh me? Oh, my God. I don't think I need to do that, and I have limited time. Did you meet alone with the president on that date? Congressman, I'd like you to refresh my memory by providing a copy of the report so I can follow page, along. Page, you don't have a copy with you? I don't have a copy of the report, oh, Congressman. God. Clock will Mr. Stop. Chairman, I request uh, that the clock be stopped while this uh, charade that. is sorted out. It was a difficult hearing, but Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal made some headway. Did you make up that the president told you to write down that note, Mr. Lewandowski? I can't speak to private conversation I might, might not have had with the president of the United States. Did you lie about the president telling you to write down the note? I believe That's not a the, private conversation. I believe what is in the report is an accurate description. Okay. So to be clear, you also gave the special counsel notes from your meeting with the president that are not fabricated and totally untrue as per the president's tweet. So when the president said all those notes never existed until needed, that was his quote, that's just another instance of the president trying to discredit anyone who actually tried to document his misconduct. Now the president is going further, isn't he? You've said previously that you have nothing to hide and that you would answer all questions. Here's what you said. Can I play that clip? I never asked for presidential immunity whatsoever. Chris, I sat there for 12 hours and before I left, after the last four hours, I said, I will sit here for another four hours to answer every single one of your questions to the House Intelligence Committee. I said, before we leave today, I want to be very clear. I will sit and answer every one of your questions. There's no reason to subpoena me because I'm willing to volunteer if they want to ask me questions. I'll be happy to answer their questions because I have nothing to hide. 
It's interesting, Mr. Lewandowski, because obviously the president does have something to hide because the White House is directing you not to answer the questions in front of the Judiciary Committee. And that is a tremendously shameful thing, Mr. Lewandowski. Yeah, that's one thing to call it. There are others I can think of, but I'm not allowed to say them on the radio. Uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee had a few good moments as well. And Corey Lewandowski, again, doubled down on being a jerk. Investigation when he asked you to deliver him a note about that very investigation. Did the president tell you that? What you've just read is not on the screen, Congresswoman. You need to look at the screen. There it is. Yes or no? Read the screen. You're welcome to read it, Congresswoman. Uh, you're welcome to be stalling, and I'm not going to stall. You either answer the question yes or no. Congressman, I'll take the same you, privileges that you've had other members. tell you that nobody at the White House was supposed to even contact the Attorney General about the investigation? That you can answer yes or no. I will not disclose any conversations I've had with the President, Congressman. Again, uh, you are obviously here to block any reasonable inquiry into the truth or not of this administration. The White House counsel, quote, shortly after Sessions announced his recusal, directed that Sessions should not be contacted about the special counsel investigation. And it pretty much continued like that until Congressman Cicilline of Rhode Island finally interrupted Lewandowski's stonewalling of Congressman Eric Swalwell's questioning to say what many of us were shouting on Twitter, hold Lewandowski in contempt of Congress. Are you refusing to answer, Mr. Lewandowski? No, Congressman, as I've explained in a letter from the White House, Dated September 16, 2019, Mr. to my attorney. Mr. Lewandowski, that letter Mr. Lewandowski's conversation with the answer. president... So, and Mr. with senior advisors to the president protected from disclosure. We stop the clock again for this obstructive behavior. Mr. Chairman, point of order, and I'd ask the clock be stopped. The clock will be stopped. And Mr. The Chairman, I'd ask that this gentleman, oh, excuse me, gentleman will state his point of order. My point of order is, Mr. Chairman, this witness continues to obstruct the work of this committee by refusing to answer questions. He's been ordered to do so by you. I ask that you would judge him in contempt in these proceedings. Point of order. That's not a proper parliamentary inquiry. Oh, it was God. a point of order. Will, it wasn't a parliamentary take, I will, inquiry. Excuse me. I will take that under advisement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You'll take Gen it under advisement? Really? Come on. Actually, Cicilline didn't go far enough. I suggested that the Democrats perform their constitutionally mandated duties of performing oversight of the executive branch. They should have the sergeant-at-arms immediately arrest Porter and Dearborn for their failure to comply with a congressional subpoena. And they should arrest Lewandowski for contempt and obstruction of justice. If the Democrats don't show some backbone and hold these crooks accountable for what they're doing to our country, they will lose in 2020. In which case, we all lose, as I don't believe we can survive another four years of this kind of crap. Is that plain enough for you? There is other news that, you know, we really just didn't get the chance to get to today, such as 50,000 striking General Motors workers, union members on strike against General Motors um, across the country have now been notified their health care coverage has been cut off. Seriously. General Motors cut off the health insurance of striking workers. If we had Medicare for all, this wouldn't be an issue. Just saying. In other news, Israelis went to the poll on Tuesday for what Benjamin Netanyahu hopes will give him a sixth term as prime minister. That's up in the air now as, as of 
press time, the race was too close to call. A usually reliable exit poll from Channel 13 gives Netanyahu's Likud party 31 seats and his center-right bloc a total of 54, while the center-left bloc of blue and white party leader Benny Gantz won 58 seats and his party won 33. Keep your fingers crossed. Oh, and Donald Trump's threatening war with Iran. American intelligence is indicating that this weekend's attack on a major Saudi oil facility did originate from Iran. Even in a post-Bolton White House, the sabers are still rattling loudly for war. Donald Trump tweeted Sunday that the U.S. is, quote, locked and loaded and ready to respond once it determines the culprit and learns who Saudi Arabia believes it was. And then in the Oval Office on Monday, Trump shockingly admitted that our military response was up to Saudi Arabia, who he strongly inferred was willing to pay the U.S. to be its military mercenaries. You said the United States is prepared for war? Uh, the United States is more prepared than any country in the history of, of in any history, if we have to go that way. Uh, as to whether or not we go that way, we'll see. We're going to have to find out definitively who did it. Uh, we have to speak to Saudi Arabia. They have to have a lot of uh, they have to have a lot in the game also. And, you know, they're willing to do that. Uh, I think everybody knows they're willing to do that. So we'll be meeting with Saudi Arabia. We'll be talking to Saudi Arabia. We'll be talking to UAE and many of the neighbors out there that we're very close friends with. We're also talking to Europe. A lot of the countries that we're dealing with, whether it's France, Germany, etc., uh, talking to a lot of different folks, and we're figuring out what they think. But I will tell you, that was a very large attack, and it could be met with an attack many, many times larger very easily by our country. But we're going to find out who definitively did it first. Iran's Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, announced on Tuesday that, quote, there will be no talks with the U.S. at any level. Remarks apparently meant to end all speculation about a possible U.S.-Iran meeting between the two countries' presidents at the U.N. later this month. Trump, unsurprisingly, has again been lying to the American people about his willingness to meet with Iran with no preconditions. NBC's Katie Tur explains what's so dangerous about this. These escalating tensions with Iran come after Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels took responsibility for an attack in Saudi Arabia that shut down 5% of the world's oil supply. The Saudis today said their initial investigation indicated Iranian weapons were used in the attacks. Iran has denied the U.S.'s claims. It's all happening against a backdrop of failed U.S. efforts to get Iran to the negotiating table, despite repeatedly offering them talks with zero preconditions. But to come back to the credibility of the president, he's now claiming that the fake news is saying that I am willing to meet with Iran, no conditions. That is an incorrect statement, as usual. Not only has the president said he'd meet with Iran with no preconditions multiple times on camera, but his top aides have as well, multiple times, on camera. I would certainly meet with Iran if they wanted to meet. Do you have preconditions for that meeting? No preconditions, no. They want to meet on me anytime they want. No preconditions. You want to talk good, otherwise you can have a bad economy no for the next three years. Not as far as I'm concerned, no preconditions. Now the president has made clear he, he's happy to take a meeting with no preconditions. The president's made very clear he's prepared to meet with no preconditions. Today, the president reversed himself, insisting there were always conditions. 
Yes, it is hard to take this president at his word, but we're talking about threats of armed conflict with Iran from the commander-in-chief of the world's most feared military as he rages about his political enemies and heads for a campaign rally. Mr. Trump has made it clear he does not want to be mired in another major conflict in the Middle East. But still, does that mean he gets to threaten it with impunity? The Manhattan DA's office on Monday sent a grand jury subpoena to Donald Trump's accounting firm to get his personal and corporate tax returns for the past eight years. The subpoena stems from the investigation into payments made to two women who have alleged affairs with the president, including porn star Stormy Daniels. Donald Trump has strongly denied the affairs. The president's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, admitted to making an illegal payment to Daniels in order to keep her quiet in the days leading up to the 2016 election. Cohen is currently serving a three-year prison sentence stemming from those payments. In light of new sexual misconduct allegations leveled against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh in the New York Times, several prominent Democrats have called for an investigation and, in some cases, Kavanaugh's impeachment. The House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler, though, said that they're too busy. During a radio interview at WNYC, he said, quote, We have our hands full with impeaching the president right now. That's going to take up our limited resources and time for a while. Nadler did say that his committee plans to question FBI Director Christopher Wray next month and will include questions about the agency's investigation into Kavanaugh. All right, we're going to take a break and come back on the other side and get going on Climate Week because it's here. We've got a lot to talk about, so stick around. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show, filling in for Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote of being leery of a fast-talking huckster who visited his home. The louder he talked of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons, Emerson exclaimed. Likewise, today's workaday family should do a mass inventory of their silverware for the fast-talking CEOs of 181 union-busting, tax-cheating, environment-contaminating, consumer-gouging corporations are asking us to believe that they stand with us in the fight against, well, against them. From Wall Street banksters to big oil polluters, these profiteers are suddenly trumpeting their future intentions to serve not just their own greed, but every, quote, stakeholder, which is what they call employees, customers, suppliers, etc. But vague proclamations are cheap. 
and it's worth noting that these new champions of the common good propose no specifics, no actual sacrifices by them or benefits for us. A few media observers have mildly objected, saying it's, quote, an open question whether any of the corporate proclaimers will change how they do business. But it's not an open question at all. They won't. They won't support full collective bargaining power for workers, won't join the public's push to get Medicare for all, won't stop using monopoly power to squeeze out small competitors and gouge consumers, won't support measures to stop climate change, won't back reforms to get their corrupt corporate money out of our politics, won't embrace any of the big structural changes necessary to reverse the raw economic and political inequality that has enthroned their plutocratic rule. This is Jim Hightower saying, in fact, their empty proclamation is what West Texas cowboys might call bovine excrement, meant to fend off the actual changes that real reformers are advancing. Corporate elites aren't about to fix inequality for us. They're the ones doing it to us. What do the corporate powers from Wall Street to Walmart have in common? They hate the Hightower Lowdown. You can see why at www.hightowerlowdown.org. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show, helping to hold down the fort while Brad and Desi are off taking care of his father, who is in the middle of a major medical emergency. This is the week that's been long in the making. The global climate strike is happening this Friday, September 20th, and it kicks off a week and then some of climate actions around the world. To fill us in on what's happening, I'm thrilled to be joined by Tamara Tolls O'Laughlin. She's North America Director at 350.org. Hi, Tamara. To state the obvious, this must be a really busy time at 350.org. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's to say the least. I, I, with uh, some 700 events happening in the U.S. and over 840 events happening across the globe, uh, we're the driving engine for the adults. So, yeah, we got a lot on our hands. That, that's awesome. Now, now things kick off in a big way on the twentieth. That's this coming, or that's um, uh, what is it? Friday uh, of this week with um, the the climate strike. This is kids taking the initiative here um, to to well demand change, right? What 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 exactly is going to happen on Friday? Sure. So they'll be uh, launching strikes across the globe. We are in 177 uh, countries and all in so many places. I think in the U.S. there are a minimum of two activities happening in each state. So folks will launch off from an important place, a symbolic uh, union of places that represent where fossil fuel issues are happening, where the public square and the commons are. And people will launch in favor of um, four demands that were set off by the youth, and it'll be the youth um, their terms are that they're demanding a Green New Deal, respect for indigenous lands and sovereignty, uh, investing in communities affected by poverty and pollution, and really a focus on environmental justice, uh, protecting biodiversity and sustainable agriculture. And what we're going to do as adults is close down our offices, turn off our websites, uh, leave our desks, and follow them into the future as we demand all of these things so that the powers that be are really clear that this isn't just a call to action for a day, but kicking off an entire week that makes the point that climate action is now. And if it's not on the top of every agenda, it just isn't happening. 
So this is led by kids, really high school kids around the nation who are uh, who have started this the, the idea of this walkout, this strike. Um, but you're encouraging adults and the rest of the world to get involved too, and 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 make it a a, a general strike. It sounds. Yeah, the Fridays for Future Coalition has really worked hard to connect all the individual strikers who've been taking it out on the streets every single Friday in front of the place where decision makers meet at home. And in their request to us to bring the adults, we have responded by um, developing business level communities, digital websites that are closing down their business for the day. We want cab drivers, shopkeepers, barbers. We want people who have things on their agenda but know that climate is impacting their everyday life to get out in the streets. And so we've really been thinking a lot about what it means to make the work multiracial and what it means to be multi-generational. And that has shown up in the way that we've talked about it, in the visuals that you see, in the articles and discussions that are popping up, in the communities that have been working on this stuff under other names for a long time, because climate is sort of the young, I call it a leaf on the tree on the branch of social justice work. And if we're going to be successful, it means we have to make sure that we're including everybody who's been working on air quality and transportation and all the other things that are really huge factors in whether we will survive climate change or not. Uh, It's a a tall order there. And and I I love that everybody's (laughs) getting involved. So now it's a a whole week of action, though, kicking off on Friday with this uh, this, uh, uh, strike. What else is happening? What what other events can people participate in or should we be aware of? Sure. Uh, there are two maps that are really helpful for folks who are looking to find out what's happening locally. Uh, kicking off on the 28th, you can go to globalclimatestrike.net or strike with us specifically really to look at U.S. options. And there are strikes happening in your local town hall square. But following that, uh, the three fifth. 350 has 150 local network groups. That means 150 groups of people operating as ordinary citizens in their own community who know where fossil fuel infrastructure, pipelines, substations, uh, transfer stations, all that stuff that isn't glamorous and doesn't always make it on TV, but is ruining your health, challenging your future, and really ramping up climate change. So we are supporting those 150 local network groups from Minnesota to Boston, Minneapolis to New Hampshire, all over the country as they make sure the site of their resistance is the place that's causing them harm locally. Hmm. So there are, so if you check out the map, we are supporting, 350 is really working hard to support making sure those folks can tell their stories, that when the media asks us for information, we can point to the thing that's happening right behind us. It's always uh, during a um, media where people are talking about the larger impact, but the larger impact is also measured by a series of small cuts that are hurting communities right where they stand. They know where they are. And so we're supporting them in resourcing those conversations, pushing them towards reaching their goals, and making sure that folks who aren't ordinarily captured in this work are really going to be lifted up in that time between the general strike, as you have called it, on the 20th, mm-hmm. and the second one on the 27th, which was called by Earth Strike. Okay, and then in the in the middle there, um, on Monday, the 23rd, you're expecting a, a- uh, a major march on D.C.? Yes, it, there are uh, the beautiful, this is a really beautiful moment in terms of moving from mobilization and moments to driving home the policy that has to land it. And so all over D.C. as of last Friday, this week, there are actually going to be a bunch of different things happening in Capitol Hill where people either have to show us that they are with 
us or that they're with fossil fuel billionaires trying to destroy our future for for money. I'm not sure where they're going to spend it, but they must have a line on something. <laughs> and so it is really, really important to think about the fact that these dates are populating every single day. We got we have probably have 400 events that are waiting in the queue to be verified as actions that are going on in our digital network, specifically because people can look out their window and see where a thing is causing them harm. And after a decade of, of working with other organizations to make the point that this harm is happening now, people can see it. They look out their windows, they know of it's course. there. So they want to be in D.C. talking about a Green New Deal policy. They want to talk about what's going to be underneath the hood in that. They want to talk about how we're going to pay for it. So there's lots to say in D.C., in California, in Florida, in Nebraska, in Baltimore, in Detroit. And we're here to support people doing that. Awesome. So the global climate strike is the sort of the umbrella name of events happening from the 20th to the 27th of, of September. Then on the 28th, uh, it's a new challenge to make sure everybody stays involved and, and um uh, you know, keeps up all the energy that has been uh, brewing over this week. Um, you know, uh, uh, Tamara uh, Tolls O'Loughlin is with us. She, again, is the North American director at 350.org, who is sort of the umbrella organization over a whole bunch of others who are working together on this week of action. Um, I, I want to get to both history and future, but after the 28th, when, when does the U.N., um, General Assembly happened in the special climate uh, summit going on there. UN Climate Week starts right away, right mm. after. Mm-hmm. Um, and the interesting thing is that there's a youth summit component of that. And then there's the business as usual, where countries are going to be talking about what their commitments are, what kind of actions they're going to take. And part of this came to being with the idea that we cannot allow business as usual. We cannot continue to demand things that would never have solved the crisis as we see it or the crisis that we know that is continuing to come and be compounded. So working in advance by focusing um, on the youth demands and making sure that stuff's at the paramount, pushing through UN Week and UN UN Climate Week to be able to make sure that we're not being vague when when it's time to be explicit. We're not allowing for a general agreement amongst countries who have financed climate change to the, to the place where we are now to walk away and say, well, we've done our best in conversation without really outlining the places where we know what's happening and raising the roof so that we can get 1.5C as the place where we land. Otherwise, we lose people, and that's unacceptable. So there are so many different events happening. There will be discussions around what it means to have a feminist climate, Green New Deal. How do we make sure that we're not running over our rights um, as women and gender, our gender rights? How do we make sure that we're not steaming past racial equity and equality as parts of, of making sure that we get this work done? Because the same places where people are being injured are the places where, that are being destroyed first. Sure. So I think that while it's important to focus on where we land in government-to-government relations, that includes uh, indigenous populations that have not been included in our own politics or the global discussion, and thinking about what it means for the U.S. to be an actor and a part of a global conversation. Now, speaking of that, we are obviously at a, a at more of a disadvantage than we already were um, since, well, since January of 2017, when Donald Trump took office. He just in the last week. Um, made good on his promise to roll back the protections under the Clean Waters Act. Um, we we have a, a man who has done everything 
he in his power and then some to roll back the environmental protections that have been put in place in this country over the last decade. Um, obviously, he's working against the goals of 350.org and anyone who cares about the future of the planet. Uh, how how can how do we get around him other than coming out to vote on November 3rd, 2020? Well, one thing we have to do is make sure we have everybody. Yep. I think the us versus them is not a dynamic we can live in mm-hmm. anymore because what we're worried about is not going is not a, a respecter of persons, as it were. I don't know anyone who's ever been who's ever avoided having their home flooded or uh, mm-hmm. faced waterborne disease or failed to die of, ex- of extreme exposure because they represented one political party or another. Right. And I think as the pendulum swings to include all of those folks, the solutions will also have to do it. So as we mobilize people towards thinking about how we make these big ideas happen, how we stop investing in the things that we know are causing harm, that means cutting the apron strings at every at every um, banking institution that's continuing to do that work, strengthening our capacity to work across the aisle when necessary to make sure that we are holding a law that can be a law that can be enforced to make sure that we are speaking to the barriers to entry for investments that could change everything and the end of money being spent on things that are destroying our future. We have to end fossil fuels before we go anywhere else. And that means going up against this guy head on because ultimately every sad, despicable and uh, demoralizing rollback that we have seen on water, on air, on the clean power rule, they're all been attacked. He's trying to kill us all by a death. It's a death by a thousand cuts. And for what purpose? Again, I'm really curious to see what kind of plane ticket he has for the next planet where he's going to live, (laughs) because this is the only one that we have. And unless and until we hear something different, it's really just a gross misuse of authority, uh, scuttling all of the things that the branches are born to do and ignoring the voices of elected officials who did not step into office to take uh, a vow to a specific person. And that includes the um, the president of the United States, whose duty is to protect the Constitution, not his own interest. Exactly. And one, one thing I might add to that is while we're working to put someone else in office who understands the the urgency of the of the matter, um, that when if if you're and I know you're you're a five hundred one c three, so you can't take a political side. I'm not. Uh, when you're looking, oh, we, to- we also have the c we also have the c four uh, three fifty action. Okay, great. But, but well, well, people are looking for a primary candidate to support. I urge them to look at see who has uh, pledged not to take money from the fossil fuel industry. Who will walk the walk and and not just pay lip service to ever, all the good work you guys are doing over there. I think that's important. And for us, we've been tracking these folks. I mean, I've I've joked uh, plenty that it feels like a clown car of of people with great ideas, but we're actually in a rich environment full of folks who have taken climate pretty seriously. But we're not taking that for granted. So we started with our climate test, which really judged whether or not people's fossil fuel commitments are about things that haven't happened yet or investments that are on the ground today. We have an endorsements process that is going to be that is being rolled out as we speak. It's really stringent, and in the same ways that people can count on 350 to hold people accountable to the truth, regardless of how sexy it sounds, we're interested in candidates who who can walk that same line in their own communities and who have as much to say about what's happening locally as what as what they would do if they made it into the White House. So we have a couple of um, tests. We have some really great opportunities coming up as we go through. Um, the election cycle to make sure that we're not just rubber stamping people who want to support uh, 
the sound of the Green New Deal, who want to support mm-hmm. the sound of what it means to make them pay so that we can fix what's been broken. We won't be able to deal with adaption, much less mitigation, if we don't have any dollars because we continue to spend them in a wasteful way that we have been doing when it comes to fossil fuels. So we have a lot of ideas around that, and our 350 Action is just as great a place as any other to invest your dollars, your support in the process, because we're helping to shape that debate. We have gone through every single climate action plan and really are impressed in some places and not so impressed in others. So I think as folks are paying attention to the debates, our Twitter is a pretty fun place to hang out because we're really digging in deep on commitments that people have made, statements that hate that they've thrown out, plans that they have um, submitted to the public. And we're really scrutinizing it along with a lot of really great other partners in the movement. So that's all at 350action.org? Yeah, uh, yes. And you can find, you can also find us on 350 Action on Twitter. And we'll be preparing as we pivot from this mobilization to the work we have to land next to the policy and election stuff that has to happen. Even as we move towards COP25, where the rest of the world will get together in Chile in December to mm. talk about civil society and the environment and really thinking about what it's going to mean to get the dollars that are necessary to stop this train from going where it's going. Awesome. Um, this is all this is all great. And these are resources that people need to take advantage of. You guys are doing all the work. So so to make our decisions easier on us. So thank you for that. And I'll do my best to help, <clears throat> you know, amplify and spread the message. Uh, again, we're speaking with Tamara Tolls O'Laughlin. I love this. You're the North America director at 350.org. Um, and the thing that gives me joy in saying that is before when we were uh, arranging this interview, I, I emailed you um, a link to an interview I did with Bill McKibben 10 years ago. It was it was October. What was it? 23rd, uh, 2009. It was the day before uh, the International Day of Climate or something like that. It was one of the first big international actions. And um uh, at the time, I had been talking with Bill on and off for the probably about a year. I think around the time 350.org got off the ground, I would talk to Bill McKibben on my show. I would talk to Jamie Henn. And I think at the time yeah. there, there were five or six people working at 350.org. It is now a global organization. Um, just looking through the About Us and the, all the names in alphabetical order, um, I was thrilled to see how you've grown in the past decade. This is, um, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty amazing thing. Tell us about the organization now as opposed to where it was, you know, a decade ago. Sure. I think the interesting thing is that the roots of everything you see now have emerged. It's been 10 years. You're exactly right. Um, the, the other interesting piece is that in Climate Week, you'll see uh, Jamie and May, Boogie and, Jam- and um, Bill and I working together. So awesome. to some extent, you'll see us, you'll see the evolution of our work. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a lot of really important conversations about what it means to build a climate movement for the future that's bound by science and justice. And that means getting out of our cloistered shells, the places where we have worked and where we already know people to recognize that all of this is connected to a much larger work. And if we're going to get to the larger us and minimize the them so that we can solve problems, we have to be in communities where we have not been. We have to talk to folks about the really deep need to connect climate to justice work and what it means to cause a liberation that creates space for doing things differently and and undoing as much as we have been doing. That means we have some um, 
50 or 60 people in the U.S. team, seven in, in Canada that make up North America, and then hundreds of groups of people who are volunteers grinding, working hard, studying policy, and thinking together. That has spurred us to work in Brazil in Latin, uh, and have Latin America in Brazil, in Mexico, in Puerto Rico, in places where we have to do our work so that what we do in the U.S. doesn't get shifted to other parts of the U.S. and South America. Um, that also means going to Africa, where so much of our work ends up if we're not being smart about where our dollars are, who's funding it, what kinds of activities are okay. And people have struggled for decades to be able to make clear that it is not business as usual to destroy the planet, ruin people's health, and keep fossil fuels going until they just break down. So we have an Asia finance team that's doing incredible work, and it spans the, the global universe of realities happening in, in um, all over the world. So I think that we have voices that have started from those seeds that were planted 10 years ago, but have emerged and grown into locally honed spaces where people can talk from experience about what they've seen, how climate is impacting them, and where the justice lens needs to be amplified, but not from an American point of view, but from the perspective of those folks who are working in Eastern Europe, in Turkey, in, uh, in England, in Africa, in Asia, who are working in the Philippines, and who are working in Guam, and who are working in the Pacific Islands. Those folks can tell you that they see the difference every day, and it's really just made our work rich and fun um, which is kind of a weird thing to say when you talk about what we're up against. Mm-hmm. But at my day, I usually start my day talking to some colleague in another time zone because they've been up all day thinking about the same things I'm going to be up thinking about. Right. And I think to some extent there's some real harmony in us working together. It was inevitable and in the plans. So I think we're just emerging. And with the support of, of folks, we've been able to help support some of the largest movements that are active now. Our roots are all over the way this work has been built, and we're really excited to stay in coalition with those folks as we continue uniting those of us who care about our survival. It's it's great. I love seeing how how the organization has grown over the last ten years. Um, it, 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 it it you know warms the heart knowing, and I know a lot of the. Uh, the exuberance, a lot of the excitement comes from young people. I mean, all one need do is invoke the name of uh, Greta Thornburg, who is here for uh, this big climate strike. Um, how much impact do young people have around the world? I, I, we see it here in the U.S., uh, both in terms of their their um, their insistence on doing something about the climate and I think guns are the two big issues I'm seeing kids really step up on. Is it the same around the world in terms of climate? The rest of the world doesn't have our gun problem, obviously. Well, the interesting thing is that I'll just push back a little in a friendly way and say okay. that this work is multi-generational. Okay. And I think the interesting thing is that if we, the tactics, and strategies that are currently being employed come from a vision that is 50, 60 years old in some cases against an enemy that is 50 or 60 years old. Conservation, moving into environment and becoming climate as the urgency that we need, that took decades to happen. And so it will take the voices of young folks who know exactly what's on the line, who are pushing with clarity and vision and strength and the support of adults who understand that and are ready to work against what has been built. So not all of us have had equal agency. And to some extent, that actually brings us to a multiracial lens and why we have to think about who is included and who is excluded and what we call work and whose work goes unseen because we cannot do our work today if we're not doing it as a whole. 
And so I do think that in other places there are some barriers to entry, but in others, the U.S. isn't looking too great. It's pretty interesting, even amongst the uh, couple of hundred staff we have across the world, to think about what means what it means to talk about equity, the movement of people and resources to support value and vision that is inclusive. And for us to do that work and think about that in the U.S., healthcare is so expensive that we've essentially decided that it's okay for a certain number of people to die while we do business. That's actually not true in other places. So when we talk about climate consequences and the right to strike and people's ability to defend their own voice, we really do have to have a global lens to think about where the U.S. fits. Um, Where's our appropriate argument as we advance, make them pay and forcing those folks who have benefited, as my grandmother would say, hand over fist from polluting, where those places have gone, what kinds of practices are allowed to happen in our sister countries, and whether or not we, when we win, you can't see me, but whether we win, quote unquote, is it really a win if it goes somewhere else? And so I think that makes it pretty complicated for us to move from the really important discussion that Greta has brought to the world about the youth and emboldening so many young people to stand up right now and say, I don't need to understand everything, but this feels wrong. I don't need to have every single fact in place, but here are some folks who do. And it's been really incredible for us to be a part of working with Greta to bring that message to as many people as possible, supporting the youth where they stand and where they live and helping them to work together. Great. To the end that they have yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, let me play devil's advocate for one moment here. Um, we mentioned that this International Day of Climate Change action that I spoke with Bill McKibben about 10 years ago was 10 years ago. Um, and we're still we're seeing the the planet warming at ever increasing rates. I mean, it's happening much faster than the experts even predicted. The estimate of we've got 12 years, um, well, we've eaten up about a year of that already, and it may be faster than that before, you know, all hope is, is lost. How far have we come in 10 years? Have we made progress or, or are things just continuing and escalating? So I think it's both and, which hmm. is creepy and stressful, but there's hope in it. Um, I think in terms of getting the world to take this urgency seriously, I think to some extent, as someone who's been in this work, I've moved every three years for 21 years doing environmental work. Let me tell you, it's really the number of people who recognize the issues has grown exponentially. Mm -hmm. The number of folks who recognize that it's showing up in different ways in different places has grown exponentially. The one marker of success I can say that 350 is directly responsible for is making the point that we have to end fossil fuels. We can't negotiate with them. We cannot find a ramp down that takes two more generations to happen. The end of fossil fuels was a thing that people laughed at. They didn't take it seriously. They couldn't imagine what we would do, much less make room for it. And so I think one of the things that we've been really responsible for in focusing on divestment and pushing people to mobilize and think about where their dollars are going is keeping the moral obligation to stop harming people in the limelight in the same way as that we have an actual obligation to stop um, ushering in the things we say we don't want by watching our dollars pile up in opposition to our own freedom and health. So I do think we have looked at 10 years. People understand parts per billion. I mean, I feel when I'm wearing a 350 shirt, people ask me what, if I go to a neighborhood where I am not normally, people ask me, what is that about? But the mm-hmm. second I say, they're the parts per million by which we will end up surviving climate, people are not confused about that sentence. Right. I think we have some nomenclature that has really made it into the common ne- like lexicon of usage of words. 
So talking about climate change, talking about human health, talking about greenhouse gases, figuring out things that we can do, making arguments, not just what we're against, but what we're for. All of those things are markers of success in the last 10 years. And I think the problem that we've come up against is one we always had, which is that in isolating fossil fuel interests, we also have to isolate the people who support them. And so we have a larger group of people than we've ever had before who are clear on that fact. So while it's super uh, uninspiring to still be thinking about some of this stuff, I think the fact that a larger number of people are calling for it, shouting for it, and willing to put their bodies on the line is a thing that we can be excited about. Most definitely. Um, uh, thank you so much uh, for j- spending so much time with us on a, on a very busy week, very important week. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate it so much. Uh, Tamara Tolls O'Laughlin, again, is the North American director at 350.org. You can go to 350.org, find uh, events, actions near you happening this week that you can get involved with, um, and you should. And then check out 350action.org as well and take advantage of all the hard research work they've done and uh, to, to help guide your vote in the correct manner. Tamara, Tamara, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. I'm, I'm so enamored of the work 350.org does, and I obviously I've been a fan for many years. So thank you again. Well, thank you, and thanks for your continued support of us. We appreciate it, and I hope to see you out on September 20th. I, I, well, I'm down in South Florida, and um, I know there's a big action planned in Miami. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah you know, it, it, we're very spread out down here, but I will do my best to, to get to at least one of the actions uh, during the week. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Tamara Tolls O'Laughlin, North America Director of 350.org. Visit 350.org or globalclimatestrike.net for information about all the events happening this coming week. Since you heard us talking about that interview I did with Bill McKibben 10 years ago, it was one of many back in those days when 350.org was just getting started. I dug that interview, it's all of seven minutes, out of the archives just to draw some contrast between where we are now and where we were 10 years ago. So stick around. That conversation with Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org, is coming up next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Bill McKibben is with us, and uh, Bill, you are one of the, I think, one of the foremost authorities on climate change, on the environment, and you have founded a website, um, you're a co-founder of the website 350.org, and uh, one of the goals of the website is bringing the world together tomorrow for an international day of climate action. So let's start first and talk about 
350, what does the number 350 mean? Absolutely. 350 is the most important number in the world, even though nobody had heard it even a year and a half ago. After Arctic sea ice melted so violently in the summer of 2007, our best climatologists went back to work, and by January of 2008, published a slew of papers saying, we now know where the drop-dead line for climate change is. Any value for carbon in the atmosphere greater than 350 parts per million is not, as one NASA paper put it, compatible with the planet on which civilization developed and to which life on Earth is adapted. Now, that's a tough number because we're already past it. We're at 390 parts per million, Nicole, and continuing to rise. So the political imperative of those numbers was very clear. Climate change is no longer considered a future threat. It's now a present crisis demanding enormous action immediately. Now, in about six weeks, the world leaders are getting together in Copenhagen to deal with the issue of climate change. But tell us what's happening tomorrow, this International Day of Climate Action. What is it? This campaign that we've been running is designed to take that number 350 and drive it into the public debate. And to do that, we've organized this global day of action around the planet. It's started already because it's already Saturday in New Zealand and Australia, and there have been lots and lots of things going on there already. Before the day is done tomorrow, there will have been 4,600 or more rallies and protests and events in 177 countries. It's been called now, the newspapers are calling it the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history. That's pretty remarkable considering that these it's all happening around a, a pretty arcane scientific number, albeit an incredibly important one. And it's been amazing to watch even the first few pictures come in today. 15,000 school children rallying in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Wow. Uh, American troops in Afghanistan making the 350 out of sandbags and posing behind it. On and on and on. Very beautiful and very powerful. And we think that before the day is over, we'll have made enough noise to make some difference. Every one of your listeners can go to 350.org and find out what's happening near them. There'll be 1,800 actions in all 50 states across the U.S. It is pretty incredible. In fact, you go to the website, it might be too late to start your own action to get people together to do something tomorrow, but there's a, a search engine. You can search for actions near you, put in your zip code. I'm in South Florida, and I found a number of things going on, as is the case pretty much in every city. And I even took it a step further. I just started going through countries. My daughter, I, I adopted my daughter from Kazakhstan. And I thought, wow, I wonder if there's anything going on in Kazakhstan. And sure <laughs> enough, there are actions in Kazakhstan. And I went through trying to find the most ob obscure or repressive countries out there. And even in places like Cuba, Iran, Iraq, there are, in some places, there's only one. But there is something going on. The only places that were not active really are Burma and North Korea. Those are the two nuts we haven't been able to crack. But across China tomorrow, yeah. there'll be 300 big rallies. China's not an easy place to do this kind of work. The people there are brave and committed and organizing brilliantly. Across India, another 300 or so big rallies. Uh, this kind of thing is really important. We haven't had a movement about global warming before, the biggest problem humans have ever faced. It's 
high time that it got going, and it's beautiful to see it start to happen, and beautiful to see it focused as much on the developing world as the developed. Absolutely, and I love that the the website 350.org it's the gathering point for it. And when these actions are happening and, and you're having these massive shows of the number 350, along with other actions, people are then sending in pictures and posting them on the website. So you have a tangible thing there that we can go to and look and see what they did in whatever country on the planet. That's right. It's a kind of big potluck supper and there's stuff pouring in from everywhere. And tomorrow at 3.50 in the afternoon in New York City, we'll be in Times Square projecting lots and lots and lots of these images up on three of the big advertising screens in Times Square for everybody to see. And because everybody around the world was very excited about having their face up on the big screen in the middle of New York City. So it's a lot of fun with an incredibly serious purpose. This is the most important number on Earth, and it deserves and needs to be the most well-known. Now, can you tell us what's going to happen in December in in Copenhagen? I have no crystal ball. Um, (laughs) At the moment, it doesn't look all that good. Everybody's lowering expectations and backing away and on and on and on. But the great hope is that if we're able to build a popular movement, that will at least help. It will push the negotiators back a little bit in the direction of the science. They get pushed so hard by the fossil fuel industry and things that they don't know which way is up, and we have to help reorient them. And I love that you're doing this. Uh, Bill McKibben, I know today is a very busy day, obviously, as as this is, it's it's all finally happening. I'm hoping that sometime in the next few weeks we can spend a, a good chunk of time and really talk about the issue of climate change, where we are and what we can do to turn it around. I just wanted to get you on the phone for a few minutes tonight to let people know what is happening tomorrow and let them know how they can get involved as well. Nicole, I'll look forward to a longer talk, and just thanks to all your listeners. We'll enjoy seeing your faces out and up on those big screens at Times Square, wherever you are helping us out today. Terrific. Thank you so much. Bill McKibben, author of the book The End of Nature and a writer-activist co-founder of 350.org. It's a pleasure talking to you, and we will do it again soon. Thank you so much. From 10 years ago, October 23, 2009, that was Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org, who today acts as a senior consultant and advisor to the group. We've come a long way in the past 10 years, but obviously still have a lot of work to do if we're to save the planet from ourselves. Tomorrow, Angie Coiro will be guest hosting, and she'll cover the new initiative from the Columbia Journalism Review and The Nation on how the media should cover climate issues going forward. I'll be back later in the week as we continue to send love and healing thoughts to Brad Friedman and his family. And with that, we've reached the end of another episode of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad, echoing his feelings when I say, good luck, world. Hi, Truth Seekers. It's Mike Malloy. I want you to join me weeknights at 9 p.m. in the East, 6 p.m. in the West on the Progressive Voices Network for three hours of fearless fun and frivolity. 
that's not afraid to tackle the neoconservative noise machine. We offer insight and analysis on topics that matter most to you, the American citizen, not the corporations. In fact, we have no corporate sponsors, and that means we can deliver the unvarnished, uncensored truth on the news of the day. With election season fast approaching, you will soon be bombarded with confusing, mostly conservative propaganda designed to lull you into a coma, so you will rubber stamp the candidate the corporate media decides you want. You deserve better. My program will make you think, but I will never tell you what to think. Listen for yourself. The Mike Malloy Show weeknights on the Progressive Voices Network. Always progressive, always on. Keep it lit and tell your friends.